0: Welcome to this little bonus episode, or episode 7.5. Following our review of Enterprise Broken Bow. So at the end of my hardback edition, there's a behind the scenes of Enterprise um, by, uh, I'm going to butcher this name, Paul uh, Um I've got the Paul bit right, I've got no idea how you pronounce his surname. Um, but there's a short, short uh, a few pages about behind the scenes of Enterprise, which I thought I would read out for you here as a kind of little bonus episode. I didn't want to add it to the review because um, it's just be me reading it out, basically. So then it's up to you if you want to listen to it or not. But here we go. So concept, take her out straight and steady. Somebody once said that the two things that first started the Internet, explains Rick Berman, co-creator and executive producer of Enterprise were pornography and Star Trek. Rick Berman isn't making a joke. After working for two and a half years developing the idea for the fifth television installment of the entertainment monolith known as Star Trek, he has heard any number of rumours detailing exactly what the series is going to be. From a Starfleet Academy show, to a series about futuristic Special Missions Force, to a look at the future from the Klingon point of view. All sorts of ideas have been banded about the internet detailing what the fans know the production team is working on. Fans discussing the past, present and future of Star Trek is something that has gone on forever, Berman admits. We are conscious of it, we are respectful of it, we have people who are in touch with it and who keep us abreast of what the feelings of the fans are. But we have to eventually do what we think is best. That's not to say that some of the things that we hear don't influence us to some degree we can't let the fans create the show. No matter what the rumours flying around fandom were, they all seemed to share a basic feeling of which Berman already was well aware. It was time for a change. Rick Berman began working on the basic framework of the fifth series, long before the USS Voyager made its way home. About two and a half years ago, the studio came to me and said they were interested in having me create a new series, either to overlap with the last half year, Of Star Trek Voyager, or to start after Voyager ended. I knew that I was not interested in just doing another 24th century series. I felt that after Star Trek The Next Generation and Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, to just slap another seven characters into a new ship and send it out in the same time period, with the same technology and the same attitudes. For me, for the writers, and I think also for the fans, we had done enough. My interest in developing another Star Trek series was really contingent upon doing something dramatically different. To me, the most logical thing to do was to take the show back a couple of centuries. We had done a wonderful movie in Star Trek First Contact. In the movie, we met Zephyrin Cochrane in the 21st century and we saw Earth in a very distraught state. We knew when we made contact with the Vulcans and we had our first warp flight. We also knew that 200 years later would be Kirk and Spock and Star Trek. But what happened during those 200 years? What happened between those years of despair and renewal? And the era of near perfection that existed when the original Star Trek series began? So came the thought of placing a show somewhere in between. With the time period chosen, a whole new vista for storytelling emerged. One that would allow for ideas that Berman and his team had not been able to explore with the more recent incarnations of Star Trek. I felt that with Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, we had captains and crews who were not filled with the charm and fun of doing what they wanted to do. They were in fact people who were in uncomfortable positions, in places where they really didn't want to be. Benjamin Sisko was not crazy about being on Deep Space Nine. He was a recent widower who was filled with despair which he got rid of to a large degree, but this was not a man who was on an adventure in the sense of where the series took him. Catherine Janeway also was a rather severe character who felt responsible for having nearly 200 people lost in space for seven years. I felt it was really important that we got back to the basics and we got back to where we had a crew that were doing exactly what they wanted to do, who were explorers, who had a captain who was an adventurer and who was light-hearted a little bit of Captain Kirk, and a little bit of Chuck Yeager. And to have a group going off where no man has gone before, and also a group that, because they were more accessible, because they were more contemporary, we could relate to in a lot of ways. If you or I were on a spaceship, and suddenly we came upon an inhabited planet, it would scare the shit out of us. I'm not saying we wouldn't be excited, I'm not saying we wouldn't be filled with awe and amazement, but we'd also be terrified, we'd be nervous we'd have a whole lot of feelings that people like Jean-Luc Picard never had, because this was day-to-day work for him. He took a lot of this stuff for granted. This was all fodder for the creation of what I thought was going to be a wonderful new direction to take the series. To see the first humans to truly go out where no one has gone before, this seemed very exciting to me. It seemed exciting to me for the reasons I've just said but also because it would let the fans see all the things that they had come to know as part of Star Trek in their infancy. To see them being developed, to see them not working all that right, which would mean a lot of fun. It would also make our characters seem closer to the present, which would enable them to be a little more uh, contemporary, a little bit more human, a little bit more fun. With the time period chosen and the basic outline formed, Berman took the idea to Paramount hoping for the green light that would allow him to start assembling his team. The studio was a little resistant at first, he admits. There was a question of why not go further into the future. But we have found that further into the future tends to mean suits are a little bit more tighter and consoles are a little bit more sleeker. And basically we've done that. We've done many episodes where we've had to sneak into the future a little bit. It doesn't bring us that much. By going back, it brought us a great deal. Eventually, when the studio embraced the idea and Brannan was brought into the process, we began developing the characters and eventually the story and the script. Brannan Braga, co-creator and executive producer, recalls the morning Berman called him from his cell phone while heading to the studio and asked him to develop the new show. At the time, Braga was co Executive producer and Voyager, and he found the concept of going back to the beginning an exciting proposition. Together, the pair started laying out the universe of the 22nd century. What I can tell you is there's no federation, Barger explains. Starfleet is very young, it's only been around for a decade or more. There are some vessels flying around, some low warp ships like cargo sh- uh, vessels. We've got a colony on the moon, we've got a space station around Mars. We've been exploring, but in a very limited way, because we just didn't have the warp capacity to go very far. We've met some other aliens, courtesy of the Vulcans, but we've never bolted out on our own. We've always been under the Vulcans' close watch. We haven't gone that far, so we're itching to go. In terms of how close this Earth is to Roddenberry's vision, I think it falls somewhere between now and Kirk's time. Not everything is perfect. I think humanity has gotten its act together in a large, to a large degree. I think that war and disease and poverty are pretty much wiped out. But what's important is that the people aren't quite there yet. I don't think these people have fully evolved into the Captain Picards and Rikers. The direction of the, the new series was a dramatic departure from previous series, and the producers knew that the difference had to be reflected in the show's name. The question became how to keep it linked to the proud Star Trek history while at the same time making it unique. Since The Next Generation, we've had so many Star Trek entities. Berman rattles off the list, Star Trek The Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Generation, Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Insurrection, just one after another. Our feeling was to try and make this show dramatically different which we are trying to do, and that it might be fun not to have a divided title like that. I think if there's any one word that says Star Trek without actually saying Star Trek, it's the word Enterprise. And with that, the title was born. With a concept, theme and title, the show needed to find its crew. As always, the most integral role is that of the captain. In this case, they created Captain Jonathan Archer, Scott Bakula a man in his mid-forties, as the script for Broken Bow says. Unlike the captains in centuries to come, he exhibits a sense of wonder and excitement over his new ship and the chance to explore the stars. With the captain in place, the senior staff fills in down the line. Chief Engineer Commander Charlie Triptucker, Connor a Southerner who enjoys using his country persona to disarm people. Tactical Officer Lieutenant Malcolm Reed, Dominic Keating, a buttoned-up Englishman with a flair for weaponry, helmsman Ensign uh, Travis Mayweather, Anthony Montgomery, an African-American space boomer who grew up on a cargo vessel, and com officer Ensign Hoshi Sato, Linda Park, an exolinguist described as a spirited young Japanese woman with a fear of space travel. Though the crew complement is set at around 80 humans, the pre-Federation ship does have characters from alien races thrown into the mix as is the custom for all Star Trek series. T'Pol, Jolene Blaylock, a severe yet sensual Vulcan observer, accompanies the crew on their first mission and later joins on as science officer. And Dr. Phlox, John Billingsley, an exotic-looking alien with a benevolent smile, just happens to be the most convenient Doctor around when Archer is charged with the task of preparing his crew for departure in three days. As the audience realised long ago, Star Trek, though set in a science fiction universe, is first and foremost a show about characters. These seven characters will now be added to the Star Trek family, and the producers can begin to craft their adventures. It's always an ensemble on these shows, Bragger explains, but we're not going to concern ourselves necessarily with divvying up episodes between characters. The star of this show is the captain, and he really will drive the stories, but everyone will be involved. Trip is a major character, and to Paul is certainly a major character, and the others, it's hard to predict. For instance, the first episode after the pilot, to our surprise, is a big Hoshi episode. It just so happens that that's the show we came up with. You can't always predict how it's going to develop over the course of the season. You're also not sure which characters are going to pop out. For instance, I think now we're finding, at least early on, that Trip is really a character that's popping out, and with whom... We're really having a lot of fun, but by the end of the season we could discover that Reed is really jumping off the page. It's hard to say. Typically the role of the captain has been the most difficult to fill. The right blend of leadership and compassion are essential if the audience is to connect with the person in the big chair. In this case, according to Berman, the choice was easy from the start. Though the actors cast to play the previous captains of the Star Trek series did have followings before being asked on board, Scott Bakula is the most widely known actor to be hired to helm a Star Trek series. Rick Berman explains the benefits of having Bakula sign on. As a recognised actor, he brings a little validity to the show. It doesn't hurt to have someone who is recognisable. I've yet to find people who don't find Scott tremendously talented and likeable. When his name was brought up to us by the studio, we jumped for it. We were looking for a little hand solo quality. We were looking for a little boyishness. We were looking for somebody who had a sense of excitement and awe and was his own man, someone who was young and fit, someone who embodied those heroic qualities that haven't really existed since Kirk. We had a meeting with Scott and just sort of fell in love with him. I cannot think of a single soul I'd rather have playing that role. Once the producers gauged Bacula's interest, casting the rest of the crew became the task at hand. As with any new series, some of the job proved difficult, while some of it was surprisingly easy. Interestingly, Dominic was someone who read for a role on an episodic show a year before, Berman says, and I was so impressed with him that even though it was a year away, I didn't hire him because I thought he'd be great to save for this show. Also, ironically, he was the first actor who came in on the first day of casting. The other characters took some time, Braga adds. But we eventually found the right people. The hardest role to cast was to Paul. Anyone you're trying to cast, a, uh, sorry, any time you're trying to cast a complex character who's an intelligent, mysterious, complicated alien, and also who happens to be a babe, cringe. Um, it is not an easy task. The last time we really had to do this was with Seven of Nine, and it took a lot of time. So the last role we cast was to Paul. It took a lot of searching to find that actress who was at once striking and yet had an intelligence about her. Who also is a good actress. It is a hard combo for whatever reason. Though the search may have been difficult at times, Berman is sure they have found the perfect crew for Enterprise. I cannot go on more about this cast, he says. They're extraordinary. I've never been as pleased with putting together a cast of characters as I have with them. Now that we have shot the two-hour pilot and the first episode are halfway through the second episode... I'm seeing it in every sense. And as filming progresses through the first season, Berman is excited to see how things develop. We spent a year and a half creating these characters, he continues. Then you hire actors to play them. And then together, these characters are brought to life with both the writing on one side and the actors doing what they do on the other. The characters always, as one season leads to the next, become richer and richer because there's more and more backstory to them. And the actors begin to feel comfortable and they bring unique things to the characters that we as writers and producers would never dream that are unique or those specific actors to those specific actors. With the universe and cast firmly in place the next detail is to lay out the basic themes for the storytelling. Braga notes that while the series is deeply entrenched in the excitement of exploration it will still have its roots closer to home. We're going to do stories that have ramifications back on Earth, he says. This is the first ship going out there, and they represent humanity, so there are going to be more references to Earth. We're going to deal with certain situations that are closer to Earth and have ramifications closer to home. In terms of actually flying the ship back to Earth, that remains to be seen. We haven't decided. I will say that it will not be a frequent thing we'll do, simply because when we're travelling at warp 5, you get pretty far from Earth pretty fast. To turn all the way around, you're going to have to have a damn good reason. A lot of the pilot takes place on Earth, and it's really a fun place to be, strangely enough, because it's kind of a fresh setting for us. Although the concept for the show took a step back in time, the producers decided to include a bit of a futuristic element as well, adding a shadowed man out of temporal, uh, temporal sync with the 22nd century and a faction of an alien race, known as the Suliban, involved in some mysterious war. Their activities form an intentionally unresolved plotline in the series pilot, part of a story arc the producers hope will continue throughout the life of the series. Certain elements came out of discussions that we had with the studio, Berman explains. We were very impressed with the idea of creating what I like to call a temporal Cold War, there are some people from the distant future, maybe as far as the 30th century, who have developed time travel. For reasons that we do not understand, there are some people back in the 22nd century who are doing the bidding of the people from the future. Our new breed of bad guys, the Suliban, we learn from the pilot, have been given a great degree of information regarding genetic engineering in exchange for doing the bidding. Why have they come back to the 22nd century, What is their purpose? Is there one faction from the future? Are there many? We don't know, and, in an X-Files kind of way, we may not know for years. We thought it would be fun, Braggar adds, since this show is a prequel. If we just made it a little bit of a sequel too, so you have the temporal Cold War going on, where factions in the distant future are waging secret battles on various fronts, and in various centuries, and the 22nd century is one of these fronts. We thought it would be interesting to slowly play out a mystery regarding all of this that somehow involves Archer. We're going to be doing that, hopefully, over the course of many, many episodes, possibly seasons. We haven't figured it all out ourselves yet, but we thought that would be a cool idea to layer in. As for the mysterious man pulling the strings, the script only describes him as a humanoid figure of indeterminate age. Barger himself is just as cryptic when asked about the man behind the war. We have several possibilities, he admits, but we have not settled on any of them, and we may come up with a, yet another one. I think we're going to see how it plays out. We have some ideas, but honestly, we don't know for sure. We'll find out along with Archer. Design. This new show cannot be just another Star Trek series. That's really item number one. It will be a ship show lucky I said that right, Uh, but with an entirely new, entirely different Enterprise, one which is both retro and cool at the same time, gritty and utilitarian, with space-efficient interior and hands-on equipment. A ship which shows the audience a lot more nuts and bolts than other Star Trek series, while still having an incredibly futuristic look. In a subtle, very recognisable way, the ship must foreshadow the design of Enterprises to come. Chronologically, the drama takes place 100 years beyond First Contact, And 100 years before Captain Kirk. Warring factions on Earth have made peace, Starfleet exists and hundreds of spacecraft of various design have been in use for some time, exploring nearby planets. This Enterprise is the first spaceship to be filled with the best, to date, Cochrane warp drive, an engine capable of speeds up to warp 5. It's a ship with the power to go faster and farther into space than any previous ship and to be able to explore planets far outside our solar system. With those marching orders from Rick Berman, production designer Herman Zimmerman began work on what was to become the fifth Star Trek series, Enterprise, and more specifically, the SS Enterprise, NX-01. Zimmerman, who served as production designer for two of the Star Trek television incarnations, Next Gen and Deep Space Nine, as well as for the, most, uh, the more recent films, was excited to have a chance to take a fresh look at the franchise. In designing something, Zimmerman says, you need to have some place to hang your hat, some philosophy to go on. The first thing I have to do is certainly read the scripts and be cognizant of the demands of that series on scenes and characters, but also to look further down the line without any actual concrete information as to what might be necessary to flesh out more of the ship than what we're going to see in the first two hours. That's part of the consideration when I start thinking about it. The production design team must anticipate how each room may be used by this new crew in this new time period, although chronologically this may be the first time a Starfleet crew has manned such a ship. Zimmerman explains, in the case of Star Trek it's a special kind of vehicle, no pun intended, for storytelling because it has such a rich history. With his script as a blueprint, Zimmerman began his research. I do a lot of looking at other science fiction films, he admits, while also looking at, particularly in this case, what's current at NASA, what's on the drawing boards for new space shuttles, and again in this case, what's happening in the US military, particularly the Navy. Because as you know, Star Trek originated from Roddenberry's interest in the C.S. Forrester series of Horatio Hornblower novels. The new series has similar models for defining the characters in relationship to each other. That's kind of a Star Trek given by this time. With the series taking place over a hun- uh, sorry only 150 years from today, Zimmerman made the most logical possible extrapolations of the directions in which he believed the technology will evolve. Then he was able to bridge the gap between spacecraft in current reality and the previously developed Star Trek starships of the future. Because as Zimmerman himself says, one of our main concerns is to remain true to our position, historically, in the Star Trek family. Our first full view of the majestic ship as it clears the dock and moves into open space. More rocket ship than starship. Enterprise is lean and masculine. There's that description again. Yet its deflector dish and twin warp uh, nacelles suggest the shape of Starfleet vessels to come. With those lines, the Enterprise makes its full first appearance in the script for Broken Bow. The words on the page, however, fail to convey the full dramatic impact of the ship on the screen. Likewise, they fail to reflect the amount of work it takes to get from the drawing board to the reality. The design was originally a different concept entirely than the one with which we ended up, Zimmerman admits, which is often the case. You sometimes spend days, weeks or whatever period of time it takes before the reality sets in. Thinking about what you think is the right design for the exterior of the ship and then someday somebody along uh, along the line says well that doesn't look very good or in this case, gee, it looks like the old Enterprise and you realise that you have to go in a totally different direction. Braga expands on the idea behind the original concept. I'd just gotten back from the LA car show and I'd seen the new 2002 Thunderbird. What I really liked about it was that it was the classic Thunderbird design, but modernised. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. It was at once tantalisingly modern, and yet very, very familiar at the same time. So we discussed it, and we thought, well, let's take Kirk's ship, the original Enterprise, and let's soup it up and make it more futuristic, and bring it into the 21st century. And we worked on that for a while, but ultimately it just looked too much like the other ships. It was too familiar. It wasn't new enough so we ended up completely abandoning that approach and starting from scratch. In this case, Zimmerman adds, we had about a month of sketches and computer-generated images roughly showing shapes of different ships that eventually evolved into a ship that was really cool, but it looked very much like the classic Star Trek Enterprise. Now that was a really cool ship and the series would have been well served by it, but I don't think it represented what Rick and Brannan see as the vision of this new Enterprise so we went to work again. Though the producers wanted the look to be different, they did not want it to be so dramatically different that it seemed out of place. This was still to be a Star Trek series which naturally required a Star Trek vessel. Zimmerman describes the path that led them to the new design. We found a ship that was in our archives, a minor vessel that had been used in a battle in one of the features that had been created by... ILM we did not use that ship but we took ideas from it and from those ideas eventually and this process took about four months all week and weekend CGI work by a very talented lightwave artist Doug Drexler we finally came up with a shape that everybody loves I trust the fans will love it as well as the producers and the cast do we ended up with a design that is definitely a Star Trek vessel and that it has a saucer section and warp nacelles, but it doesn't have an engineering section at the bottom, Braga explains. It's more shiny and chrome-like on its exterior, more metallic, and less kind of a flat grey. It's a little bit more like a cross between a stealth plane, a nuclear sub, and a Starfleet vessel. With the design in hand, the next step in the ship's evolution was to determine the physical aspects of the ship for filming. The ship as seen on the screen will probably be entirely CGI, Zimmerman says. There will be models made, but they won't be the principal photography models. We have found since 1987, that the state of the art has changed dramatically. One of the things that model photography does is give you a very realistic bounce of light. One of the drawbacks of model photography is you have to build a model for everything. If you have to articulate a torpedo launch mechanism on the exterior of the ship, you have to build it. You have to make it work, and you have to do it in a scale that can be photographed. With the computer generated images you can be infinitely more flexible. Everything takes time but once it's built you can look at it in 12 different ways and they'll all be perfect. They'll all be correctly lit, the moves will all be correct for timing and correct for size and shape. All of that is very useful when you're doing a new one hour episode every seven days, which is what an hour tv show schedule ends up being. So the CGI modelling has come since 1987 to a state of the art that is not only as good As but better than model photography. Enterprise Bridge Far more basic than future spaceships, this command centre lacks the airport terminal feel of Enterprises A through E. A central captain's chair is surrounded by various stations. The floors and walls are mostly steel, with source light coming from myriad glowing panels. No carpets on the floors, no wood panelling on the walls, high-tech gauges, dials. Zimmerman recalls his basic direction for the most familiar interior set of all Starfleet vessels. Rick and Brannan particularly liked two pieces of equipment from the classic Trek series bridge. Spock's viewer and Uhura's communications earpiece. They thought some earlier versions of these objects might be found to be useful. Well, we did indeed do that. We did not go so far as to use a O'Hara's um, earpiece. It was proven to be an unnecessary device. We did, however, use a modernised but retro version of Spock's viewer. But I think the fans will both identify with it and enjoy the connection. As far as the interior goes, Berman adds, we visited a submarine and got the idea of what confined space was like. We tried to make it a little bit more confined, but at the same time a, hospita- a hospitable place that the audience would want to come visit every week. The rest of the set grew out of that directive, deeper and slimmer than the familiar bridges of Star Trek's past. The design appears more functional than comfortable, but still warm and inviting. Though the ever-present captain's chair may be the cosy refurbished seat from a Porsche, most of the surrounding chairs are metal mesh, and as Hoshi notes during a particularly rough patch of turbulence, they do not have seat belts to keep the crew strapped in. There are however strong metal guardrails encircling the bridge. Similar to the one seen in the original series, for the crew to clutch on as they are tossed about. It's more hands-on for the crew. Zimmerman says, "There are knobs and buttons and switches and levers and things that actually move and do something." In previous series, since the original, because the original did have buttons to push, we put things behind black plastic. We're now in possession. Uh, we're now in possession all LCD screens and plasma screens, which are out. We see the frames, there's very little that's built in that's not accessible. A new addition to the bridge is the set that, in previous series, has proven to be one of the largest challenges. To the various Star Trek directors, formerly known as the Briefing Room, the Enterprise's Situation Room is set off in an alcove behind the captain's chair, but still very much a part of the set. In the past, directors have noted the difficulty in creating interesting scenes within a room that is little more than a large table surrounded by chairs. This new design for the situation room places it in action rather than away from it and opens up the staging possibilities. Though the space is tight, the room does have removable walls to allow for cameras and lighting, as do all the standing sets. Another feature in all the sets is the addition of what the production crew refers to as busy boxes which Zimmerman describes as things that can be opened up and worked on during an emergency or even during the routine of getting the ship ready for leaving space dock. Leaving a lot more for the actors to do. One familiar set for Enterprise is the transporter room. However, the transporters of this earlier time have a bit of a twist. This transporter is not really recommended for biological organisms, Zimmerman explains. It's basically a cargo transporter. So while we are occasionally forced to use the transporter for a live specimen, it's not recommended. Mostly we use the shuttles to leave the ship. This design too mixes little of the familiar with the new Zimmerman explains. Again, it's an homage to the original series transporter, and it's a precursor of all the transporters you've seen since. It's got a single pad, but it does have ribs around it. that have the same structural pattern that were on the ribs of the transporter on the original series. That was one of the things we did as a nod to Matt Jeffrey's designs. Main Engineering Unlike the spacious, brightly lit engine rooms of future starships, this is more like the cramped, uh, red-lit nerve centre of a nuclear submarine. A more dramatic change in the design of the interior can be found in the heart of the ship. Engineering. Zimmerman's directive for the room was that it be a busy place with lots of moving parts. The concept behind the design is that the room is heat-generating and pulsing, The area is more cramped, and the core itself is horizontal rather than vertical. As were warp cores past, Zimmerman goes on. We talked of a honeycomb design that multiple push and pull rods accessible through openable doors. Machine walls cover the bulk of the engine. In other words, you're not going to see a big roiling mass of energy. You're going to see the result of that through small windows. You're going to see a very powerful engine that looks like a very powerful engine. And the audience will also see the process of which the energy is distributed through tubes leading out of the core directly to the warp Ah, oh, nacelles I don't know that word in short the design for the engine reflects a more simple time as Zimmerman explains it doesn't look like you can't understand it or that it wouldn't break down if all the components weren't working perfectly so it's a more realistic propulsion system than the fantastic propulsion system other sets include the Armoury, loaded with missiles instead of the futuristic photon torpedoes, and the bay, which also has a new look. I think my favourite set is Sickbay, Braga admits. Obviously the bridge is very cool, but bay to me really captures a nice flavour of Enterprise, because it's so different. It looks believable, it's kind of white, gleaming, with lots of chrome, and it kind of looks like a real hospital, a real futuristic hospital. I think people will be surprised at the departure we've taken there, but it's well worth it. Knowing the look of the main vehicle the production team could then move on to its shuttlecraft. The Enterprise shuttles will play a more integral role in this series than in past series because transporter technology is so new. As Zimmerman previously noted the Enterprise transporter platform is technically approved for biotransport but shuttlecraft are still the preferred method of getting the crew from one place to another shuttle design is almost a direct steal from the shuttles that are being built right now as Zimmerman admits. The X33 reusable launch vehicle is probably the closest model to the actual shuttlecraft that we are using on Enterprise. We feel that re-entry vehicles right now are as close to state of the art as they are going to be in the next 100 years, mainly because we lack the propulsion system that Star Trek has so blithely invented without explaining quite how we acquired all this power. Also, I think that will be a delight to the science-oriented viewer, because it's familiar. The conflicts of designing a series being filmed over 30 years after the original series, yet taking place almost 100 years previous to it, to its setting presented a number of problems in the course of the design. At some point in the planning for each set, prop, costume and even makeup application, a decision needed to be made on where to bridge the gap, whether to make extrapolations pl- 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 based on current technology or on the vision of the future circa 1967. In the end, a combination of periods was achieved, with the emphasis being on a future based on the technology of today. The most difficult challenge for maintaining design continuity was the props, since some concessions needed to be made along the lines of the more portable equipment. Considering how far technology has come in the last decade alone, what may have appeared futuristic in the 60s does not hold up to today's technological advancements. According to Berman, the decision on how true to remain to the original needed to be made on a case-by-case basis. As an example, he points out the computer on his desk is less bulky than the one set on Captain Janeway's desk on Voyager. One of the most recognised props from the original series was the communicator. The wireless handheld device, so ahead of its time for the original audience of Kirk and Spock, is old hat for today's audience, many of whom have similar devices in their homes, cars and jacket pockets. Again, Zimmerman was required to bridge the gap between the technology of yesterday's future and today's. They're quite long the lines of the communicators that we saw in the classic series and the early movies but because they are being designed now, they are much cooler and much more interesting pieces of equipment. Their function is pretty much the same. We're not doing badges, we're doing flip-open communicators, tricorders and other diagnostic equipment that is small, it's micro-miniaturised, but is not vastly different in its design from the great things that are being done now. This quickly became the defining element for all props, Zimmerman admits. The truth is our props are more capable but less slim and compact than what you can buy today. That's part of the dramatic necessity. So the actor has something that the audience recognises instantly and that works. Having said that, they are really interesting props and they will make interesting devices for the telling of a story. And it is those stories that the designs will best serve. There's a lot of wonder and awe and sense of the first time in all of the concepts for the stories, Zimmerman explains. This is no ho-hum, we're out in space again. We know how to do this, just sit back and watch us. It's like we're discovering it for the first time and it's really very exciting. It's reinventing the franchise in many, many ways. And the designer is just as excited about this new opportunity Personally, it's a kick in the right place to get an opportunity to reinvent a Star Trek ven- uh, venue like this, because one gets set in one's ways, always doing it the same, he continues. This is so fresh, such a new approach, such an opportunity to go back to the roots of something you've already done, and say, well, how was it that it came to this point? How would it look if it was 200 years or 300 years before, but still in our future? and maintained the continuity that eventually leads into Captain Picard and the Enterprise-E. Well that's a fun job, why wouldn't you like that? Costume designer Robert Blackman started working on Star Trek in the third season of Next Generation and was asked back for the latest instalment. Ready for his own challenge of reinventing the franchise. To do so he looked at the series as a whole, focusing first on the evolution of the Starfleet uniform. We talked about the timeline and where the series fit, says Blackman. We've got original Trek, we've got the movies, we've got Next Gen, DS9 and Voyager. They all travel in a linear direction. We know where we started originally with classic Star Trek, and we know where we ended at this point, which is DS9. Where those changes for the garments happened were pretty clear. It was then taking the knowledge of how it progressed and working backwards. The first question naturally became just how far to back up. Blackman's challenge was to determine where the uniform design would have been 100 years before the original series. To do this, he chose an approach quite like Zimmerman's approach to the designs for sets and props. Blackman looked to current apparel as his basis for extrapolating... I wish he would stop using that word. A look for the future. What I chose to do was to back up to now... And do a lot of investigation on essentially supersonic jet pilot testing suits, NASA suits, the sort of look and then play around with those and kind of move forward on them. Blackman likens his work to the evolution of clothing in general. It's sort of like the tie which has been around for 130 years. I don't think that people are going to necessarily be tireless in the next 130. There are aspects that are very familiar to us today that are recognisable aspects I keep pressing those to really land it closer. We're all well versed in what we imagine life in the universe will be in four or five hundred years. But what it's going to be in a hundred years is another thing. So my gut response to that is to is to tie it more to now than to then. In the case of Star Trek, Starfleet uniforms have become integral to the look of the series. Blackman explains that the new look is a radical departure from the past. All of the Starfleet stuff is natural fibres. For the first time ever, there are zippers and pockets. We've never had them. From the original series on, they were eliminated. Pockets, because the idea was there, was no currency. There was nothing. You didn't need house keys. It was all done electronically. No zippers or buttons, because the clothes were imagined to be put on in some sort of way by force field or whatever the hell you wanted it to be. In fact, the uniforms have taken on a more casual look beyond the addition of pockets and zippers, with accessories of utility caps and away jackets. They wear black mock turtlenecks underneath, Blackman continues. The uniforms are a darkish blue, brushed twill that is stonewashed, so they look a little bit worn. There is a whole kind of casualness to it. They're wrinkly. They're just something that is not as formalised as we have done previously. They still are sort of form, fit and sleek in the body. All of our people look heroic in them, which is always the goal. So there's always those kinds of things that remain constant. Among the familiar, however, is the designation of department insignias. One of the things that we're resonating from the future are the colour bars, black manads. The colours are the same, but they had switched after original Star Trek to the movies, and then from the movies to next gen. For this new series, Blackman reverted to the original. What command was, and what security was, and what science was, made a change that we have honoured. Command positions are gold now, not red. Science is still blue, security and engineering are red. Then he changed the design, making it an accent to the uniform instead of the focal point. In this case, the insignia is simply a thin stripe that goes around the yoke of the uniform. Environment is also a consideration for the costumes on the series, since the characters spend most of their time on the ship, the uniforms must contrast with those sets to some degree. While the overall design is an important consideration, Blackman does not allow it to entirely determine his concepts. I look to see what the designs are, but the colours of the set don't really influence me in this particular world, he explains. My notion is that if you have that much activity in the background, then you need to make the thing in the foreground, which is usually the actor, as simple as possible. Hence these sort of blue matte fabric uniforms. Yeah, they've got zippers and so on and so forth, but it does all blend eventually, and you're really just looking at the surface. There are a couple of scenes I saw being shot where they're standing in front of a lot of moving graphics, and you never lose them. You're never distracted by the graphics. The graphics are brilliant, but they don't talk. Though the Enterprise is an Earth ship, with a crew made up almost entirely of humans, two alien characters have been added to the mix in the form of T'Pol of Vulcan and Dr. Phlox of an alien race new to Star Trek. These characters represented two distinctly different challenges for Blackman. In T'Pol he has a character of a race the audience is quite familiar with. The task in this case was to maintain the familiar while reinventing the look more for today's audience. Blackman describes his approach to this new character. Some of it is about broad-based marketing, and other parts of it are about getting a character going. That uniform has a sort of form fit. It's a very beautiful It's a very beautiful woman, but it has certain things that, over the years, I've distilled out of the original Vulcans. When I say the original Vulcans, I'm talking the return of Spock, the movie's version, rather than anything that happened in the original series. Those things are very much based on a kind of a Chinese silhouette. They were very metallic and very brocadey and flat at the same time. Over the years I've developed a kind of eye that gave you an echo of that. It's a serpentine thing that starts slightly extended from the shoulder point and then curves in and back out so you get the notion that you're creating a very wide shoulder as some of those mandarin clothes do but without actually doing it. So that is the basis to her. The Vulcan civilization is also x amount of years earlier. She's definitely in earth tones. It's kind of a grey-brown very sort of striated piece of fabric. The Vulcans tend to be more coolish coolish in colour. I've chosen not to do that. I've chosen to warm her up. She plays against it. She's very Vulcan in the script and she's very Vulcan and will be. I think throughout. There's a hint of Vulcan in the design and it's got to be a uniform. We've never seen the Vulcans in uniform before. So I just went with this other look. On the other hand, there is Dr. Phlox, a character from a distinctly new race, of what the script refers to only as an exotic alien species. As there was no Star Trek history to look to for his specific character, Blackman started with a basis in familiar Earth design and evolved from there. He describes the look as similar to shirts of East Indian design that tend to be longer, hang down over the pants. Blackman goes on, I've taken that design, using, using that as a kind of gentle shape to pull him away from the rest of the people. These sort of shirt smock things and then just added a few odd details to them so they are very alien to all the Starfleet stuff that you see, but they're not so alien that you don't forget about it soon. And he just becomes a guy with a really benevolent face. Another aspect of the design for the series is the more casual tone of an earlier time in Starfleet. To set this tone, Berman has said the audience will see the crew out of uniform from time to time. Where the concept of the uniform is important, however, Blackman admits it is the civilian clothes that can prove the larger challenge. In any of the time frames, those have always been the more difficult clothing to do. It's just hard to figure out what it is. You get uh, to a uniform or something that's really extreme, then it's easy. You can just make it really extreme. I always sort of hark back to the fifth element. You look at that and you go, OK, there are backless t-shirts with straps across them but we can't go that far, it's not our world, so you'll see Captain Archer in the first two episodes in essentially t-shirts and jean-cut pants with odd shoes. It is a gentle nod to the future with a fairly strong stance in the present. Also making an appearance in the pilot episode is one of the favourite Star Trek races, the Klingons, and with the new setting, an earlier version of this race needed to be defined as well. Of course, makeup applications have come a long way since the 60s. These Klingons will appear more as they do in the later versions of Star Trek, a look that had its inception in the film Star Trek The Motion Picture, and grew into the Klingons of modern Star Trek. Though the appearance may be modern, however the concept of the race will be entirely fresh. The Klingons are to a degree proto-Klingons, Braga explains. They're Klingons that come long before the Klingons of Picard's time, therefore they can be gnarlier. Nastier, more warlike Klingons than ever. They'll eat the hearts of their victims and sharpen their teeth and so forth. This description led Blackman to a very specific look. It's very rough furs and levers and chain melee, he explains. They still have the kind of boots that we're used to. Nothing is black and grey anymore, it's all kind of earth tone. They're pretty dirty, they look pretty ratty, really, but that was the deal so it's more primitive than we have seen before. Another key element to the show will be the ongoing temporal cold war. The foot soldiers of that war in the 22nd century are the new race of Star Trek aliens, known as the Sulabon, Sulabon. There are two different groups in the same time period, Blackman explains, kind of the good and the bad. The bad ones are like chameleons. They're genetically mimetic. They can mimic or become anything they need to. It is not the same as a shapeshifter. the skin will turn into whatever it needs to turn into. Consequently, the bad ones have developed that technique to the point where they can manufacture it. They have manufactured this as part of their clothing, and are then able to change themselves physically and their clothing physically. The good ones haven't done that, or if they have the capability they don't use it, so they appear in things that are definitely futuristic, but don't relate to their skin. With these aliens, Blackman worked closely with makeup designer Michael Westmore. As much of the look of the aliens is mirrored in their clothing, the characters have a very specific kind of peculiar skin, which we were able to copy in a pretty good way, Blackman explains. It's a different colour, but when you see them, the skin texture and the texture of the clothing are very reminiscent of of one another. They are pretty much very simple jumpsuits with built-in feet. They're just coloured this amazing colour, and they're very slight of stature. Blackman looks forward to the challenges of the new series, especially because they are new. I think it would have been more daunting and more difficult if the spin that I had to do was to take what I had done over 12 years and split that hair one more time, he explains. That would have been a really difficult thing. The difficulty here was not really coming up with the ultimate look, the appearance of the uniform. It was the process of evolving that. It required quite a few completely rendered prototypes to get us to say... No, no, we don't want it to be a weird synthetic fabric. No, we want it to have a more now, today, this moment look. So that was a process that was hard. And that's a process that's hard every day as regards to this series right now. We don't have much of a frame of reference for it, so we're continually reinventing that or inventing that. That becomes the difficulty, but the difficulties kind of get your head in the right place to be able to do it. So if you're still with me, apologies for butchering most of that. Um, Yeah, uh, pretty shoddy production. I'm sorry I didn't go back and edit everything out that um, I messed up. But hopefully um, that gives you a little bit of insight. And as I say, it was just an an add-on to the copy of the book I had. So I thought I would just read it out for you, for anyone who might be interested. Thanks again, and speak to you soon.